0: Moving right along in our Old Testament survey, uh, getting well into it and uh, covering just about one book a week. Occasionally we have a two week book or something that we have to deal with. But uh, Esther is a very unique book in Scripture. Uh, one of the amazing things that I, I like about this particular book is uh, how well it pictures the fact that God oftentimes uses very ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary work. And uh, it's amazing. I've recently been giving it a lot of thought and I was talking with a, a pastor friend of mine last week as I was uh, sitting and fellowshipping with him and how much uh, uh, there is of, of prideful conditions in our hearts and our minds oftentimes. And even in the case of our churches, and, and God's really, in the last several months, been dealing with me on some things um, with the issue of, of pride and, and, and taking glory from God. God. God doesn't give His glory away. It's His. And uh, oftentimes, uh, I catch myself in saying things that I'm just in the habit of saying. I don't give a whole lot of thought to them. And the truth is, they're not pointing people to Christ. They're not giving Him the glory for things. And God's really been bringing some conviction on my heart in this, and I've been given a lot of thought uh, along these lines. And over and over in Scripture, we find God using uh, ordinary people, uh, sometimes people that you would least expect to do His work. And uh, I think oftentimes He does this for the purpose of showing that the glory belongs to Him and not to us. I think it's pictured very clearly in the work of salvation, because the truth is not one of us could have saved ourselves. And if there's any glory to be had, then Paul said it best, that he would glory in the cross, in the message of the gospel. He was not going to glory in himself and the things that God had allowed him to do. And uh, Esther is one of those kind of books, Uh, just ordinary folks. We find that once again, Satan's diabolical scheme to try to annihilate and to cut off the line that Christ is going to come through. Uh, This is nothing new in the Old Testament. Over and over again we see Satan trying to do this. And yet God's plan is always going to be to preserve His people in that line of the Messiah. And what God had promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden, you can rest assured Satan is not going to foil. Uh, God is certainly going to come out victorious in it and is going to uh, preserve a line. And and can I say it this way? It's not even a struggle for God to do that. I think sometimes we get in the mindset that Satan is is powerful. He's not as powerful as God, but he's pretty powerful. And there is no doubt Satan has power. But sometimes I think we get in the mindset that uh, he and God are in some kind of a struggle. But while Satan may be in a struggle, God is certainly not. Uh, God can destroy Satan and he will in the end times by the word of his mouth. Um, There is no there is no tug of war between good and evil. I was uh, preaching last Wednesday night about some of the occultish ideas and uh, we mentioned some books and some uh, forms of entertainment that people even Christian people get wrapped up in and I've heard Christian folks say well that's a, that's a good movie it talks about uh, you know the forces of good and the forces of evil and how the forces of good uh, went out in the end but but uh, it shows them as a struggle as almost equals and uh, the fact that this is a just an occultish type of a mindset and um rest assured, God is in control and he's got a he's got a, uh, a will, a providential will of his that's going to be accomplished in this world throughout the history of man. Now, there are some things that, that men have the free will to do. And even in that, and this is hard for us to understand, God has foreknowledge of it. He knows that we're going to make those choices Um, and so he doesn't dictate these things to us. We're not Calvinistic. We don't say that man doesn't have a will in the matter, but we do believe that overall God has a will for this world and he knows that his will is going to be accomplished. And it's amazing how many times Satan tries to thwart that will and God uses sometimes even the very things that Satan attempts to accomplish his will or to bring glory to him through it. And this is one of those cases as we get uh, to the book of Esther Uh, It's interesting because Esther is the only book of the scripture that does not mention God. Uh, You won't find his name mentioned there. You will find some implications to it. And one of the unique things about the book of Esther is you see God all through it, even though he's not mentioned specifically. Take your Bible and turn to Esther chapter 4. I want us to look at one verse real quick just to give you a sense of this. Uh, Esther chapter number 4. And uh, if you remember the story of Esther, I'll just kind of briefly give you a synopsis if you're not familiar with it. <clears throat> and uh, get, keep in mind here that, uh, and I'm just going to give you a real quick timeline of Israel uh, from the time of David. So David, uh, Saul becomes the first king and David becomes the second king. We kind of understand that of Israel, uh, human king of Israel. After David comes Solomon, and so you have three kings of the a, of a United Kingdom after Solomon, the kingdom is divided. Uh, Judah uh, in the south with two uh, tribes, and um, uh, which I think were Judah and Benjamin, if I remember correctly, and then the northern tribes. Uh, and uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam were the two rulers of those. And for a number of years, uh, Israel and Judah are separated, or known as the divided kingdom. Uh, and during that time, they both go into idolatry, Israel more so than Judah. And so Judah goes into um, uh, captivity, as well as uh, I'm sorry, Israel goes into captivity as well as Judah, Israel to the Assyrians and Judah to the uh, to the um, uh, Babylonians, and um, they're in they're we call it the Babylonian captivity. Even though uh, the Persians come in eventually and defeat uh, the Babylonian Empire and they become the world empire, the folks of Israel are still in in that bondage that they were carried off in Babylon. Um, and they're still in that bondage, even though it's now under the Persian Empire. And so, the setting for the book of Esther is under uh, the Persian King Artaxerxes. The Hebrew name for him was Ahasuerus. And uh, so, if you if you see the name Ahasuerus or Xerxes uh, in Scripture, and you'll see both of those, perhaps um, you'll you'll realize that's the same king uh, that they're talking about. There, uh, just different different languages that they use his name in. Uh, The time of Esther falls somewhere between the first and second return of Israel from Babylon to uh, Jerusalem. So if you remember back in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, Cyrus, the Persian, gives a decree for the Jews to go back. And Zerubbabel, uh, who is uh, the the rightful king uh, and leader of Israel, takes the first group of folks back. Only about 50,000 people go with him or so. Then there's a, a pretty big gap of years, about 40 or so years, uh, between the first return and the second return. The second return is under Ezra. Ezra takes another smaller remnant back to Jerusalem. And uh, somewhere between that two time period, between the first and the second return, is where the book of Esther fits in. Uh, somewhere between, most people say, maybe chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra, it would kind of fit into that chronologically, so you kind of get a sense of where. This book comes into uh, into play. Um, the story of Esther is simply this. The Persian king, uh, who is was Xerxes, uh, was um, was defeated. He was trying to de- defeat the, the uprising Greek empire that was coming up under Alexander the Great. And uh, he had he suffered a, a pretty major loss to the Greeks. Now, he wasn't overthrown yet. The Greeks were not the empire yet, but he suffered a pretty major loss to him. And in that. Battle. He comes home and he licks his wounds and he has a a feast and he asks his existing queen to come and to dance for them at the the feast. And she says, no, she's not going to. As a result, uh, you know, having his pride and his ego hurt, he says, I'm going to go find a new queen. And so uh, they have a a search throughout the land and Mordecai, who is a Jew and is a relative of, uh, of Esther's, uh, encourages her to uh, go and be a part of this, and so of course the king chooses Esther uh, to be his queen. She doesn't let him know at that time that she's a Jew, and uh, over the course of time, uh, Mordecai is serving in the in the <coughs> the gates of the of the palace in Shushan. He finds out about a plot to assassinate the king, and so through the influence of Esther, he sends word. And uh, foils the plot to assassinate the king, and it's recorded in the palace records. Uh, all of this is very, very important, and I'll explain it in a minute why all of that backstory is very, very important to this. Uh, another man by the name of Haman rises in power. He becomes the chief or the captain of the princes under uh, Xerxes, and um, he he requires people when he goes out around the town to bow to him. Mordecai says, I'm not going to do it. I only bow to God. And so uh, so Haman gets very upset. Uh, he's offended by that. He hates Mordecai. And he devises a scheme. It takes him a long time, but he comes up with a scheme. And he, gets, he tricks the king of Persia, Xerxes, to sign a decree. Now, if you'll remember, there is something called the law of the Medes and Persians. And when a, a Persian king signed a decree, it could not be altered, not even by the king himself. He could not alter it. Uh, we find that when Daniel uh, was thrown into the lion's pit, um, the remorse the king had, and he wished he could take it back, but he couldn't. He couldn't even take his own decree back. <coughs> and so, uh, in fact, even to this day, when we want to say something is ironclad and it can't be changed, we call it, the, that's the law of the Medes and Persians. That's where that expression came from. And uh, so he made this, this um, decree that on a particular day, uh, the folks could kill... Uh, whatever Jews they wanted to, without fear of retribution or judgment. They could just go and slaughter the Jews, pretty much. Again, this is the work of Satan trying to cut off the line of the Messiah. I believe very strongly that over time, throughout history, Satan does this time and time again. Um, Haman uh, is is very uh, uh, arrogant. He hates Mordecai. And uh, so the king, uh, Mordecai finds out about this plot and he goes to Esther and uh, he says, uh, I need you to go to the king. The king was not to be approached unless he, he beckoned you to come. And if you tried to approach the king, if you tried to come to the king, if he did not grant you mercy for coming to him, you were killed. Uh, that was the penalty for approaching the king. And um, if he held out his scepter and said, you know, come and approach the throne, then you were granted mercy. And so Mordecai asks Esther, the queen, to come and approach the king. Well, that's a sentence of death, basically. And that's where we are at in chapter number four. And uh, look down with me as Mordecai is having this discussion with Esther. And Esther says, look, you know, this could be the end of my life by doing what you're asking me to do. And uh, let's look in verse number 14. Verse 13, I'm sorry. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? What a powerful question. I've heard that question preached on oftentimes. And, um, and a great, great question. Um, it's a great motivational question. But I will say this, just in the question itself, we see that there is an acknowledgement to God at work. And Mordecai asks Esther that question, you know, we don't know what God has in store here. Now, he doesn't use God's name here, but the implication is very strong. That he knows that there is a divine will that is above theirs, And how does she know whether or not this is not just a time that she's been brought to the case? I think something more important, at least in my heart, in chapter in verse number 14 that I love reading about that is not very often preached on is the statement that he makes here. He says, for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, notice this statement here, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews, notice this, from another place. If, if Esther had been disobedient to what God's will was in this matter, you could rest assured God was still going to get the glory of it. God was still going to rescue his people. It just wouldn't have been through Esther. And uh, there is a statement here that is a sign of the faith that Mordecai has in God keeping his word and preserving his people. I think it's an underestimated statement in many times as we read through this book. That's not the one we focus on. We usually focus on um, uh, such a time as this, you know, that that that's something you can sink your teeth into. But I love the statement Mordecai makes here. He says, look, if you're not willing to do this, God will bring another deliverance along. And Mordecai was just assured in the promises of God. Isn't that amazing? That even though God brings chastening to his people, He never forsakes them, and He always preserves them. By the way, if there's not a better argument for eternal security, I don't know what there is. The Old Testament picture of this is a wonderful picture of eternal security of the believer. That while we may get out of God's will, and we may sin, and we may suffer some of the chastening of God in this life, He doesn't forsake us, and He always preserves us. He's always faithful. And I think it's a wonderful picture that's seen here. But again, verse 14 I think is a, is a prime example of how while God is not directly mentioned in the book of Esther, He is certainly vividly seen throughout it. There's no question as you go through this book that God is at work. And even the acknowledgement of these folks to understand that these things are going to take place, the deliverance is going to happen, and that God is going to bring uh, this enlargement and this, uh, this um, uh, deliverance To the Jews. Um, Let's go back a little bit here and and try to catch up on a few notes I kind of brushed over here. Um, This takes place during the time of the Persian captivity. We talked about that. Uh, There is a feast that is established and the Jews observe to this day called the Feast of Purim, P U R I M, the Feast of Purim, in celebration of the Jewish deliverance in this particular case. They actually established a feast day. They, they established it in this time, and they continue to observe it. We don't know who the author of Esther is. Uh, we do believe that it was a, a Jew that was in, in the captivity there. They're not one of the ones that returned to Jerusalem, but one that was there in Persia. Had to have had in, intimate knowledge of the workings of the palace at Shushan. Um, he, he knew of the very very minute details of what was going on in the king's head. And in um, and those types of things. Uh, and so we don't know for sure who the, the writer is or the author is. It was not Esther. Um, some people think it could have been Mordecai. I don't know so much that it was Mordecai because there was a reference later in the book uh, to him in a time period where he would not have had access. But we do know from chapter number nine that Mordecai did keep a lot of records. And so certainly I believe that the things he had written and, and kept records of were consulted and probably used to compile this book and give a, a, an accurate historical record of it. Um, it if it, it more than likely was somebody that had a, uh, an eyewitness account because of the uh, intricate details that are mentioned. Some of them are, are very, very... Um, uh, specific details so more than likely somebody that was an eyewitness to these events and saw them with their own eyes. Um, let's see here. Covers the, the book of Esser covers the space of about ten years. Uh, we do know that Ahasuerus is no longer reigning by the end of the book. In chapter number ten, it speaks of him in the past tense, um, that he is no longer the, the ruler of Persia at that time. So these would have been probably within the last ten years or so of his reign uh, that these events took place. Um, There are several pictures of Christ that we see throughout this. Uh, Esther is a picture of Christ in in a sense in that she puts herself in the place of death for the sake of her people. Uh, Willingly uh, puts herself in in that position. And of course Christ certainly did the same. No one took the life of Christ. He laid it down willingly and was willing to give it for his people. Uh, notice also that she is a picture of the role that Christ plays in being the advocate. Uh, Esther was the one that went to the king that had the power to do something about it on behalf of her people. And Christ is our advocate. Uh, we don't understand this. A lot of people don't understand this in the day that we live Satan is the accuser of the brethren. The Bible speaks of that. He comes before God. He accuses us. Satan has access to God and is constantly accusing the brethren. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our is our advocate. Uh, he's the one that stands there. And when the uh, accuser comes and talks about our sin, uh, Jesus says, uh, Father, that one's already paid for. Uh, And then Satan brings another one up, and he says, oh, nope, that one's already paid for, too. (laughs) And every time Satan brings one up uh, to accuse the brethren, Christ is the advocate. He's the one that says, Father, you don't have to worry about that one. The price has already been paid. Isn't that a wonderful thing as a Christian, to know that the price has been paid for not just our past sins, but all of our sins? Somebody said, well, what about our future sins? Uh, When Christ died on Calvary, all of our sins were future sins, weren't they? They hadn't even been committed yet. And yet He gave forgiveness for those too. His blood covers those also. And uh, now that does not give us a license to go out here and sin. Paul said, shall we continue in sin that grace may bound? God forbid. Uh, We ought to, out of a heart of gratitude, out of a heart of love for what God has done for us, say, Lord, I want to live godly. I want to live the way that You uh, would be pleased after all that You've done for me. And uh, the Paul said it this way, he said, "...the love of Christ constraineth me." And so Esther's a very beautiful picture of um, the advocacy that Christ has for us uh, before the Father. And then we also see just once again, <clears throat> through the preservation of God's people, through Satan's opposition, his desire to destroy and to cut off the line of the Messiah, uh, the fact that God preserves this line continuously is another great picture that the Messiah is coming. The promise is still intact. And uh, something that the Old Testament saints could look forward to with joy, uh, He's still on the way. And we look back now in history and knowing that He has already come, rejoice in the fact that He has already come. But could you imagine being a Jew in that day? And even through all of the things that they went through to see that God's provident hand continued to preserve the line of the Messiah. Sometimes it got pretty skinny and pretty narrow, but he always preserved the line and, uh, and allowed the, uh, Christ to come exactly on time uh, where he was prophetically supposed to come. <clears throat> the amazing faithfulness of God to preserve his people is a wonderful picture. In spite of all of the plotting, all of the opposition, all of the persecution, um, those types of things. The key word to Esther, I guess you would say, would be God's provident work at hand, uh, having His will accomplished, even though there were circumstances that men certainly had their free will and choice in. There was a, a number of things that God had to orchestrate. Isn't it amazing sometimes in our lives, Now I understand that there are some things that um, we do in our life that God didn't tell us to do, Uh, He didn't demand us to do them, but He knew we were going to through through His foreknowledge. But then there are other things we can look to in our life and say, God just put those circumstances in place for that to happen. Now, He doesn't do that in every case, but there are certain cases He certainly does. When He's accomplishing His will in the matter in some areas, He certainly can bring things to pass. I uh, was talking with my friend Brent, who's at the Urgent Care today, uh, a, a little while back. I had met him. Uh, about three years ago now out at the airport, he, uh, he and his son Fletcher, and uh, we kind of struck up a friendship. Just We'd sit out there in our trucks and talk for a while and just kind of struck a friendship. And uh, he knew I was a pastor, and, uh, and um, uh, shortly after we had kind of developed a friendship, we lost touch. He, he quit coming out to the airport. The, air, the helicopters quit flying out there, and that's really what they were coming out to see. And uh, then COVID hit right after that, and for over a year I didn't see him. And often would wonder, you know, what happened to him, and what's going on. And uh, I was uh, I was coming back from um, uh, uh, Farmington one day, and I had Jonathan with me, and, and we were going home. And as we were coming down sixty one sixty seven, there we got close to our turnoff to come home. And I thought, you know, let's run by the airport, just see what's going on today. We went out there, and um, I'm sorry. Then I was, I'm sorry. I got that wrong. Switch that around. I was going to go flying that day. That's what it was. My nephew wanted to go flying. I'm sorry, I had that story backwards with another one. Uh, but I was going to go take my nephew flying that day, and uh, he's a big guy too. He's bigger than I am. His name's Earl, and um, I don't tell him I said he's bigger than I am because we argue about that a lot. But uh, I had to I had to fly some of the the fuel out of the airplane. The airplane was too small for the two of us to take off in the in the conditions. So I had to go up and fly the fuel out of the airplane, and uh, Dave will understand this, we we figure our plane burns about nine gallons an hour, roughly, and so I went up for the time that it was supposed to take for us to burn out the fuel, and came back, I might have been a minute earlier or so, but when I landed, I was still about five gallons over what I needed to be, and I was kind of puzzled by that, because I thought, man, I should have burned out a little more gas than that, and um, and so my nephew's standing there waiting to go, and I look over, and just as I had landed, uh, Brenton and Fletcher pulled up. I hadn't seen them in over a year, and um, so he, uh, he, I said, "Hey, I got to go back up for a minute, and burn some more fuel off." Does Fletcher want to go for a ride? And I hadn't taken him up yet, and so I took him for a ride. And when we landed, I just left the motor running. Fletcher hopped out, and my nephew got back in. We went off for a ride, and uh, and Fletcher and, and and Brent took off. Couple About a day later, I'm driving down the road. I thought, man, I didn't even talk to Brent or get a chance to say anything after I took Brent, uh, Fletcher for a ride. And so I, I texted him. And uh, I said, man, I just wanted to thank you for letting Fletcher go with me. And um, he, said, uh, he said, man, I, I, we loved it. He had a great time. He said, if there's anything I can ever do, let me know. He said, uh, you know, I smoke meat and stuff. He said, if you ever uh, want me to, to, to do something out at the church... And I said, I, I told him, I said, Brent, you're welcome anytime. I said, we'd love to have you come out and visit us out at the church. And, and um, the very next Sunday, they were here. And they've been coming pretty much ever since, except when they're out of town or sick. And of course, Nita's had a lot of health problems. And I, I got to thinking about that about a week later. My nephew called me out of the blue. He never calls me. He called me and said, Uncle Greg, I want to go flying. I wasn't going to go flying that day, didn't want to go flying that day, really. I had a lot going on, but I stopped what I was doing. I said, yeah, let's go. We went out there. The fuel didn't burn off like it should have. I had to go back up a second time. They happened to come to the airport because a helicopter took off in St. Louis, and Fletcher heard it on the little scanner that he has, and he wanted to be there. The helicopter wasn't even landing at the airport. He was just going to fly over, and they wanted to be there to see it. And so they drove there. They were only going to be there for about three or four minutes to watch this helicopter fly over. Then they were going to leave. And I happened to land at the same time they pulled up. And I started looking at all the little pieces of the puzzle that had to happen for for me to talk to Brent. And Brent and I have talked about that a couple of times already. And some people say, oh, that's just coincidence. There was just too many of them that happened that day for that to be a coincidence. God brought that to pass. There were certain things that just, just were... Beyond coincidence. Now, not everything in our life happens that way and that specific. But I want you to look at some of the things that had to happen for this story to take place. And I wrote a few of them down here. <clears throat> he ensured... Uh, first of all, he, he allowed uh, an unknown Jewish girl who, who didn't have any, anything about her, just, just an unknown Jewish girl, very obscure to rise to be queen of the most powerful empire in the world. That's an amazing thing in and of itself. That's a miracle in and of itself. I mean, who, who was Esther? She wasn't of noble blood. She wasn't of royalty in the, in, the, in the Jewish nation. She was just an ordinary person. And she rises to be queen of the most powerful empire in the entire world. Uh, he allows through that, God, God allows Mordecai, to be in the position to save the king's life. The Bible records that story. And then it talks about the fact that when Haman was plotting and wanting to get the Jews destroyed, that the king went home one night and he couldn't sleep. God brought insomnia to him. And as a result, he said, you know what, I'm going to bring the records of the palace. And who in the world wants to do that? I guess that's what you do when you can't sleep, is read something boring. And they're reading along, and sure enough, there's Mordecai, and the thing that he had done to save the king's life so many years earlier was recorded in the records. God caused that to happen. God caused that reading to take place to bring Mordecai into the mind of the king. Uh, He works with the timing of Esther's Feasts are the dinners that she has with the king and Haman. The timing of it, the outcome of it, all fully orchestrated. God dealt with all of that. Um, he gives Esther favor in the eyes of the king. When she approached him, he, held, he holds out his scepter to her and has her come to him. Um, he causes her to have favor in the eyes of the king. So much so that uh, by the second meeting, the king offered to her uh, up to half of his kingdom. Uh, God turns the heart of the king in the favor of the Jews. He had already issued a decree to have the Jews annihilated, to have them killed. And just two months after issuing that decree, even though he couldn't reverse the decree, he gave another decree saying, Jews, you got a, you've got an opportunity and I'm allowing you as the king to all assemble on the appointed day and to defend yourselves against your enemies. And then when the day came... God prospered the Jews and gave them victory over their enemies. And so once again, even though God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, we find His provident hand at work. I guess the key word here would be providence, the providence of God, His plan being accomplished. Um, The key verses, we read one of them already, chapter number 4, verse number 14. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed, and who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so Esther goes in. Because the king made a new decree and allowed the Jews, God takes the Jewish people. Now, get this, and this is just how God works. Put yourself in, in the Jews' position for a minute. If you can kind of imagine being there in that day, you're a Jew, and this decree comes out, and you know that on such and such a date, your neighbor, if they want to, can come over and slaughter you, and you can't do anything about it. They can slaughter your kids, your wife. And it's written by and sealed by the king's decree, which by the law of the Medes and Persians could not be changed. Would you say that as a Jew, you might look at that and say, all hope is gone? I mean, it can't be changed. Even if the king wanted to, he can't go back and undo it. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. And through this working of God, through Esther and Mordecai, God brings the nation of Israel from a place of uh, of, um, uh, being... uh, um, the prisoners of and being the, the, the captives of uh, first the Babylonian Empire and by that the, the Persian Empire. They're, they're, they're looked down on. They're captives of the empire. And it brings them to a place of great reverence and respect and even victory. Look with me, if you will, at the second verse that I think is a key verse here in chapter 5. And us um, see if I've got the right, the right verse here chapter five I didn't I wrote the wrong one down again I think uh, give me a minute uh, chapter eight I think it is here we go said it yeah eight chapter eight I'm sorry I wrote the wrong one down and verse number 17 chapter eight and verse number 17. Now notice this verse, it says, And in every providence and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came. Notice what it says here, the Jews had what? They had joy and gladness. <laughs> Wait a minute, the king's decree was that they were going to be annihilated. But by now, God has worked through Esther and Mordecai. And the king has made a decree that the Jews can assemble and on that given day uh, defend themselves against their enemies. And look what it says here. The Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. And notice this, and many of the people of the land became what? Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. That is something that only God can do. He can take something that looked insurmountable and impossible and make something out of it that brings glory to Him. He can bring victory. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a place in your life where you're like, There is no good answer to this. I mean, it's impossible. God, it's impossible. Isn't it wonderful that God specializes in the impossible? I mean, who would have thought? Who would have thought that just two months earlier, when the Jews were told they were going to be annihilated, that the nation would look at them and fear them? and say, I better become a Jew, because they're getting ready to take over this place. Only God can do something like that. What an amazing victory God gives to the Jews. His provident hand at work in preserving His people. I think if there's one great overlying truth to get from this, we mentioned early on, is that God often uses, not every time, but He often uses ordinary men and women To do His extraordinary work where His outcome to impossible circumstances accomplish His gracious purposes. He takes the impossible and gets glory through it. And by the way, it has to be impossible or we would claim the glory ourselves. If there was a way that we could do it, we would take the credit. Because we're pretty prideful people. But when it's impossible, we have no other alternative than to say, God just did something. He did a miracle. I love this book. There's not a lot of, there's no mention of God in it specifically. But probably his hand at work is seen as vividly, if not more so, than many other books of Scripture and one of the great, great books, I think, of our Old Testament. To see God's hand at work. The key chapter to, uh, to uh, Esther is chapter number 8, where God takes an impossible situation and turns it to the victory of the Jews. It's divided mainly into two halves. Uh, chapters 1 through 4 deal with um, the, uh, the uh, defeat of the Jews, if you will, or the, the, the decree for them to be destroyed. And then chapters 5 through 10 deal with uh, the coming of the king's decree to give victory to the Jews. And so kind of broken into two halves there. And I think this is a wonderful book to read from time to time. And especially if you're going through one of those things in life where you think, I just don't see an answer to this. There's no way out. There's no good solution. I think it's a wonderful book to read. Because we see that God can take the impossible and do something glorious through it. And he does it in such a unique way, doesn't he? I mean, who would have thought a little Jewish girl of obscurity would rise to be queen of the most powerful empire? Who would have thought that Mordecai, years, years earlier, would have saved the king's life? I love the end of the story, and I didn't share with you the rest of it. But when the king found out that Haman was trying to destroy the people of his queen, He had built these 75-foot gallows to hang Mordecai on because he hated him so much. The king took Haman and his family and said, You know those gallows you built? We're going to hang you on them. (laughs) And he does. He hangs Haman on them. And God gets the glory. And God gets the victory. And God's people are once again preserved. What a faithful God we serve doesn't matter what Satan throws our way. And there are times he'll throw things that we'll look at and we'll say, I don't see any way out of this. God's still in control. He might have our government in such a mess, we may look at it and say, what in the world? We have no answer, no solution. Can I tell you this? This morning, God's still in control. None of this has taken Him by surprise. And while oftentimes He chastens us for the decisions that we've made in the past, and we bear the results and the consequences of those poor choices. He does not forsake us. And He always preserves us. I'm so thankful for that today. Let's stand together we'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. And Lord, what a joy to study the book of Esther and to see Your hand so clearly and vividly at work. I pray that You would bless the time that we've spent studying today to encourage us to strengthen our faith in times of adversity, in times of discouragement and disappointment.